every profession, every, doesn't matter what you do, every job experiences, every worker experiences comments from people outside your profession that just flat out make the worker's hair stand on end. Just drive you crazy, right? For example, I know a lot of firefighters, they get really, really tired of hearing, hey, all you guys do is lay around the station and play video games, right? Ooh. Retail workers. Retail workers go mad over the people who walk up to them and ask them a question that is answered by the sign that is right over their head, right? Every retail worker I've ever known drives them absolutely crazy. My all-time favorite example was a Home Depot employee. This lady got so tired of people walking up to her customer service desk and asking where the restrooms were when there was a massive banner right overhead that said restrooms that way that she made her own sign and posted it at eye level. It's great, except... She used the standard Home Depot cardstock. So her sign said, restrooms, you can do it, we can help. <laughs> no, thank you. For, <clears throat> and in my profession, for pastors, let me show you. The, this, this is the comment that just curdles a pastor's milk, okay? After all, you only work a half a day a week. <laughs> Fingernails on a chalkboard, that one, I'm telling you. And it's been around a long time. Been around a long time. The Apostle Paul apparently heard that same comment. I'll show you. Open your Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's read verses 1 through 6, and, and you'll see how Paul handled that comment. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. <clears throat> my defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles, like the Lord's brothers, like Cephas, which is a, a name for Peter that means the head? Or do Barnabas and I alone have no right to refrain from working? Let's stop there. Look at the notes in your worship guide. You got a worship guide when you came in, open it up, and you'll see a few summary statements regarding this text. First thing we note is that the underappreciation of Christian servants is really ugly. That's why Paul is so angry. So angry here. Paul, you see, is a small business owner. He, he makes awnings and tents uh, for the businesses in an agora. By the way, in his case, in, in, at least in this place, they were crafted from true Corinthian leather. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Um, Paul has worked, true, Paul has worked, apparently he's worked very, very hard on every one of his mission trips that wherever the Lord has taken him. And by the way, that included 18 months, that included 18 months working right here in Corinth. And he has worked so hard in order that the churches can prosper without him being a burden. And he's also done it to distance his message from the typical philosophers of the Mediterranean world. You see, the most popular means of higher education in the classical era was what we would call a for-profit school. Students, young scholars, would pay, often pay a lot of money, to follow a Greek sophist around, to follow a philosopher around through all of life and engage them in conversation. The Jewish rabbis did very similar kind of work. Students paid to shadow their mentor. It, it was called learning the walk of life because you literally walked after your mentor wherever you went. By the way, we still do this in some professions today. Medical students spend a great deal of their time shadowing master teachers, doctors who walk around and say things, and they write down everything that they say. Astonishingly, though, get this, the greatest teacher who ever lived did not follow that pattern. Jesus of Nazareth did not charge his students. He instead lived off of free will offerings. And Paul thinks this is the best example for him as well. So he chooses to run a business as a means to fund his own mission work, and he works far more than a half a day a week. 
Paul thinks that, that this is a wonderful thing, but despite what he's doing for them, the Corinthians appear to be taking Paul for granted, and that is ugly. It seems like because they're not paying him anything, the church in Corinth has a lack of appreciation for the blessing that is the Apostle Paul. Like I said, this problem has continued for a long time. We used to do, I used to do this. When I worked in Christian camping, we used to overwork our staff terribly. Now, thankfully, that has changed in camping. But a lot of churches, I know a lot of churches, and I'm telling you, there are a lot of churches that still make this Corinthian mistake of underappreciating the servants of God. I once had supper with a very influential pastor, a guy named Bill Hybels from Willow Creek Community Church. At the time that we had dinner together, we were just starting Frisco Bible, so I asked him what he would have changed about the early years at Willow Creek. And here's what he said. Bill kind of dropped his head, and then he looked up, and he said this. We worked everybody too hard without showing appreciation for their efforts. We frankly just took advantage of our staff, both paid and volunteer, close quote. Now, that's a common mistake, but it is nonetheless ugly. And it's especially sorry because the underappreciation of Christian servants is absurd. For goodness sake, Paul is the last person to hold the office of apostle. He was commissioned face-to-face by the resurrected Jesus. How ridiculous to take him for granted. The, the absurdity is further exposed in the next verse. Look, look at the next verse, verse 7. Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit, or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock, soldiers don't pay for a war. Otherwise, you get a really shoddy war. Uh, Stalin was wrong, okay? The people who plant crops should get to eat from them. A shepherd gets to enjoy the produce of his daily milking work. When I was a boy, my dad worked at a meatpacking plant, okay? And part of the job there was that if they ever needed, they were allowed at the end of the day to cut out a few steaks, whatever cut of meat they wanted, and take it home. By the way, I could always tell when we were hurting on money, when things were really tight in our home, because that were, those were the nights we had steak for dinner. <laughs> True story. When, when other kids would come up at school and they would say, we had steak last night, I'd think, oh, they must be hurting. That's really sad. So, so Paul is reasoning that if, if, if that's how the world works, and it is, then why should Christian servants be the only ones who can't enjoy the fruits of their labor? If they don't, if you ask them to conduct this spiritual warfare on their own expense, you're going to get a very shoddy effort. Paul's teaching us the logic of Christian ministry support. Underappreciation of Christian servants is absurd, and it is ugly. And, and this isn't merely human logic. Paul turns to, to Moses' law to point out that underappreciation of Christian servants is unbiblical. Look, look at the next section, verse 8. Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned with oxen, or isn't he really saying it for us? Yes, this is written for us, because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes should do so in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have the right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? However, we've not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar in the same way. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. It is a very old, universal practice. The temple workers, uh, in Israel's case, Levites and priests, they eat the good cooked meat that was barbecued on the sacrificial altar. Happened in every culture everywhere in the world. And that is very clear. That's supposed to happen in Moses' law. Uh, Moses' law also contains the verse that Paul quotes. Here's what he quotes. Deuteronomy 25.4. Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. 
Now, the image here is based on a, a very, very old, millennially used practice. And, and here's what happened. You would, you would harvest your grain, okay? You'd bring the grain, you would put it on a very hard surface, either really hard-packed earth or, or more often uh, as smooth as you could make stones. And then you would get a really heavy sledge. I mean, heavy, heavy wood. Uh, usually there would be um, bone and rocks that would be embedded into it so it would break up. And you would put this heavy sledge on top of the stalks of grain, and you would tie that to some large animal. An ox would work very, very well. And that ox would then move around, and you would have, usually it was a boy, would direct the oxen, and he would go back and forth, working back and forth, and crunch up all the grain so that you could then thresh it and, and get the good stuff out of it. Now, if your ox had to, be, had to be muzzled, had to have control, and that happens sometimes, like this one, this picture from Ethiopia, the oxen has a, a muzzle on so the boy can control it, that's fine. But you better undo that thing fairly regularly through the day and allow him to eat. Otherwise, you're not going to get very good work. I mean, he's expending a lot of energy threshing out this grain, smashing out the grain. You, you need to make sure that you allow him to eat. Only a fool would keep his ox from eating. Not if you want him to work. In, in modern terms, muzzling the ox would be like trying to drive a tractor with no gasoline, with no petrol. It just it makes no sense. Now, while this command from Moses' law doesn't apply directly to us, and Paul says it doesn't apply to him because Moses' law is fulfilled in Jesus, the principle clearly carries forward as a descriptor of Christian service. This is the Bible teaching us how to interpret the Bible. And Paul says this applies clearly to more than just oxen and physical food. L look at how Paul states the argument in another letter, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, The elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Over the years, I have been corrected many times by church elders. Many times. All of the corrections I've received from elders have been good. Some were pretty stern. But the most severe dressing down I ever got concerned this verse in Scripture. You see, while I was in seminary, I was the interim pastor at a church. Great church, but it was in, it was in a serious financial mess when I got there. God was very gracious. We made a bunch of changes that allowed us to bail the church out and get it on, on um, better standing. And that church has been blessed. They have sailed on, and that church flourishes to this day, thank God. But during those lean days when the church was underwater, I one time went a month without any pay. I had the authority and the power to do so, so I went in, and I just voided my checks, knowing how badly the church was hurting financially. And that's when I got called in by a very angry elder board. You see, they, of course, found out what I had done, and they brought me in, and they read these scriptures to me while yelling at me, and I mean yelling. And I believe I was threatened with beating, firing, and being drawn and quartered if I ever did such a thing again. In fact, the chairman of that elder board looked at me, and he said, and I quote, I have enough problems before God, Wayne. I don't need some yahoo muzzling the ox on my watch. All staff will be paid. Close quote. By the way, speaking of things said to me, our headlines today, uh, in, in, your, in your notes, our headlines are all things that have been said to me about this topic. I just made all the headlines, things that have been told to me. Look at the next one. The next one is something Mark Bailey said to me one time when I was grumbling. Um, we were working together for about a year and a half, and I was, I was whining about something. And Dr. Bailey stopped, and he looked up at me, and he looked me right in the eye, and he said, every Christian wants to be a servant until he's treated like one. That's the next important point. Look at verse 15. 
But I, says Paul, have used none of these rights. I have not written this to make it happen that way for me. It would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. Thankfully, Paul doesn't mind being treated as a slave. Many Christians do, though. We, do, we, we expect parades and ticker tape just for doing our job. Paul instead is proud that he preaches for God and not for money. There's a, there's a brilliant balance in this chapter. While it is completely ridiculous for the ones being served to underappreciate the servants, by the same time, it is equally inappropriate for the Christian servant to demand anything. Paul's point is what we headline atop the right side of your notes. Serving without joy is absurd. It's, starvation makes more sense, seriously. It makes more sense to starve yourself than to deprive yourself of the life-giving joy of serving Jesus. The apostle would rather go hungry than lose his boast of preaching for free. By the way, he doesn't really boast. Uh, that's hyperbole. We'll see that in a moment. Paul is saying that he serves because of joy of the Lord. He does not serve because of money. This is why I don't know what I make, and I don't ever want to know what I make. This is why you should never beg people to serve in your ministry. Ever, never beg anybody to serve. It is an honor to serve God in His church. If you talk people into working for Jesus, you are violating 1 Corinthians 9, period. Many of you are servant leaders in various ministries around the world. So let me share, listen very carefully. I want to share a very important strategy with you. When you have somebody in your group who whines about the hard work, when you have somebody who clearly believes it is more blessed to receive than to give, you have somebody who is always concerned with her rights. When you have a team member who thinks that everybody owes him, when you have somebody who obviously finds no joy in serving God, fire him. Fire him. Kindly but firmly let him know his services are no longer required in that position. Now, please, please be gracious. Okay, make sure they're not just having a bad day. Make sure they don't just need instruction. Make sure they don't need a medication adjustment. That, that's fine. But if you see, I'm serious, but if you see an ongoing pattern of joyless service, please fire the person. Do it for their sake. Do it for the ministry's sake. Do it for God's sake. That joyless Christian very likely will find joy in a different placement. They may figure out how to enjoy serving the Lord in a different ministry. They may just need an attitude adjustment. Either way, you must make it clear that underappreciation of the joy of ministry will not be tolerated. I have done this. Long ago, we had a pastor who demanded more money. He demanded more money because he felt that he was owed because he gave up so much potential income when he left the business world. We very quickly sent him back into the business world. Where, by the way, he made about two-thirds what he had been making in ministry. We had to do that. We had to because absurdity kills health. And serving without joy is absurd. It's just absurd. Also, rights-driven ministry, it's not rewarding. Look, look at the next section, verse 16. Verse 16 through 18. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because an obligation is placed on me. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if unwillingly, I'm entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and not make full use of my authority in the gospel. Now, this passage, it's the only part of this chapter, but it comes into our tongue a little clunkily. Um, I'd like you to listen to the New Living Translation. I want to read it to you. It, it is not precise enough for real study, but it's a really nice job here smoothing out the rough uh, bumps of, of Greek to English. Listen to the NLT. Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. 
If I were doing this on my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice, for God has given me a sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. Paul Paul isn't really boasting at all. He is called, he is compelled, he is motivated to share the good news of Jesus. It's not about him, it's not about his rights, it's about a sacred responsibility, not rights. Think Think of it like parenting, okay? Think of it like parenting. When parents prioritize all of life around their own rights, my own rights, what does that home look like? How does that flesh itself out? I asked some wise people. I got some wise people together, and I asked them this question. I said, I said, what does it look like when I parent by my rights? And they gave what I think are brilliant answers. Uh, these are the five things they said. You'll see near constant fighting. And not just between parents and children, but between spouses. Near constant fighting, because everything's about my rights. Secondly, the children become demanding as a means of getting attention. Because everything's about me, the child has to act out just to get my attention. Discipline in those homes is chaotic. It's often harsh. Sometimes it is both at the same time. They, they do often go together. The kids are spoiled or they're, or they're silenced because they, they have to make sure they don't get in the way. And fifth, those children feel only conditional love. And by the way, what is the produce of that? What's the reward one gets for that kind of rights-based service as a parent? Often it produces a bully. Or it produces an insecure, entitled brat. And by the way, those are not mutually exclusive. By contrast, I ask the same group of people what life is like when the parents view their role as a sacred responsibility before God. And this is what they said. They said, when the parents view it as a sacred responsibility, you see shared responsibilities. Throughout the whole family structure, there is a shared sense of responsibility that gets passed on. The kids see the value of other sacred relationships, not just about them, especially the value of a sacred relationship with God or with a spouse. Thirdly, discipline is consistent, or at least attempts to be. Life in those homes is not about the child's desires. It is not. That's not, that's not a sacred trust. That's grandparenting. That's, that's spoiling, <laughs> Right? And fifthly, those children experience unconditional love. And we know from Scripture that however the kids turn out, that kind of parenting is rewarded by God. And this applies to all of life, not merely to parenting. When one serves out of responsibility, one is rewarded. The the rights-driven person receives their reward already in their rights. What they gain on earth, that is all they're going to get. But eternal rewards... Those await the person who sacrifices for the Lord here and now as part of a sacred trust. This was exactly Jesus' concept in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said this. Take a look. He said, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. I assure you, they got their reward. That's all they're getting. He goes on. He says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. Whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites. They make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. He wraps up. Don't collect for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. Let's follow Jesus' commands 
Let's follow Paul's example. Let's surrender our focus on our personal rights and instead live as ones who have a sacred trust. Do you know what that will do? That will change our work. That will change our church, our relationships, our world. And it will certainly change our eternity. All God's people said... Amen. After all, willing surrender is the calling of God's people. Look, look at the next section, verse 19. Uh, the next section, verse 19. Although I am a free man and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak. In order to win the week, I have become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, save some. Jesus gave his life. We, we must do the same. That's why he calls for believers. Believers are people who are changed by God's grace through faith in Jesus. He calls for us to follow Jesus by picking up our cross every day. We die to self. We surrender as Jesus did. By his strength in us, we sacrifice. We who are made free in Christ become slaves by choice. Not slaves of humans, but of God. Ephesians chapter 6 summarizes the concept really powerfully. Uh, Read with me. Ephesians 6, you take the underlined part, uh, verses 6 and 7. Not by the way of eye service, people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to men. The key term there is the Greek word doulos. This is a a critical word if you're really going to understand the New Testament. You see, a doulos is not merely a servant. This is somebody who has willingly enslaved himself to a leader. And I know this is hard for us to grasp, but, but in Roman culture, doulos actually had very high standing. They could buy and sell in their master's name. They could run their master's company. They, they, they were trusted as their master's representative in the marketplace precisely because everybody knew that if someone was a doulos, that person had chosen to permanently bond themselves to a master. A person like that only cared what the master said and was blessed to follow the master's instructions. Doulos. Now, go back to Dr. Bailey's comment. Every Christian wants to be a servant until he's treated like one. When we're treated like a slave, it exposes whether we are truly doulos or not. It is willing surrender that sets one up for servant leadership. Willing surrender. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not talking about being a doormat. We're not talking about practicing codependency or facilitating sin. What we're detailing is a heart attitude that is like Jesus, that is like Paul. We're willingly taking up our crosses every day. And when we are treated like a doulos, we smile with joy because that's what we are. That's what we have chosen to be. We choose to be slaves of God, the great and perfect master who frees us to serve. Remember that pastor that we fired? Remember him? He ended up learning, willing surrender. He learned his lesson. You know what he did after he was let go here? He began to examine his heart, and he began to root out the entitlement that was robbing him of his joy. And a few years later, he realized that he would rather starve than not serve God with his all. I was so impressed with his change. I was so impressed with his transformation that I wrote a glowing letter of recommendation for him to a church that was considering hiring him, and they did hire him, and he has served there brilliantly from then all the way until now. Willing surrender is the calling of God's people. And adaptable other-centeredness is our strategy. 
adaptable other-centeredness. Another teacher of mine, Gene Getz, he coined that phrase, adaptable other-centeredness. That's our strategy. It means the message doesn't change, but the style of transmission always does. We are supposed to be effectively taking the never-changing message to an ever-changing people. That's what Paul did. He was all things to all. Look, with some people, Paul emphasized his Hebrew background. He made a big deal about the fact that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he studied under Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi of his day. But with other audiences, he totally de-emphasized that, and he emphasized the fact that he went to what we would call Tarsus University, where he became an expert at Greek philosophy and Greek thinking. And then with still other groups, he emphasized his Roman citizenship and the fact that he had become, he made himself a complete expert, maybe the greatest ever at Roman rhetoric and incredibly good with Roman law. All things to all people doesn't mean the message is changed. It means that the truth of that message is tailored to connect with whomever we meet. And and all this other-centered connection is adaptable right? I have to keep learning from other people. I have to keep learning about other people so I can reach as broadly as possible. This is especially important in our increasingly divided culture. I need to always keep learning from other people so I can share Jesus with them effectively. Did you know that was a secret of the success of Paul's team? Look at this. I just want to show you. Just three people in Paul's team, okay? Luke. Luke, Greek physician, Very high standing in Roman society, but he studied and studied and he adapted himself until he became what appears to be an expert in Hebrew. When you read Luke, you can tell that he used the Hebrew not just from the Greek translation but from the Hebrew itself, and he's very good at it. It's astonishing. The Apostle Paul, we, we talked about him, educated at Tarsus U and at Gamaliel's Dojo, and, uh, and he became an expert in Roman law, Greek philosophy, Hebrew scripture. And, and then you got Barnabas on that team who whom Paul mentioned earlier in our text. Barnabas was a businessman. He owned a bunch of land on Crete. He had a family business, apparently was very wealthy. But he learned, he became a genius at encouraging missionaries and encouraging churches, so much so that they gave him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This strategy of adaptable other-centeredness made them very effective. How about us? What are we learning what are you learning so that you can better reach the people around you? Near my house is an incredible donut shop. Oh, my goodness. So good. And once in a while, I go in there very early on a Saturday, and, and I get everybody's favorite, and then I wake all the family up with a donut breakfast in bed. The staff of the shop are all Korean. Uh, many of them speak very little English. Only one of the people there, only one of this staff of probably eight people, is a believer in Jesus. When I was in there last month, she pulled me aside and she said, I'm moving to a new job, Pastor. You will have to be the light for Jesus here now. Okay. Okay. So I asked her to write down some Korean phrases for me so that I could practice them. I likely don't need to learn Korean, but by mastering a few phrases, you know what I can do? I can show that I have a desire to know and build bridges with these neighbors of mine who need the Lord. So when I go in now, I say, Anyang haseo which is a form of hello or good morning. And it's a horrible pronunciation, but they love it. They just love it. They all bow. They bow back to me. <laughs> it's hard work. I mean, I get my little paper out and I study before I go in every Saturday morning. But, you know, other-centeredness always takes effort. And, and this just builds on what Pastor A.J. taught us last time from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We must sacrifice to follow the strategy of adaptable other-centeredness. Speaking of learning, I want to show you one final quote. By the way, this one could have come from the Apostle Paul, but it came from my old wrestling coach. He said this 
often, he said this ad nauseum, the day you coast is the day you're toast. Day you coast is the day you're toast. That's what shines through in the last paragraph of our chapter. Uh, look at verse 23. Verse 23. Now, I do all this because of the gospel, so I may become a partner in its benefits. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away, but we a crown that will never fade away. Therefore, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one who's beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The Isthmian Games, say that three times fast, the Isthmian Games are the obvious background for this statement. All Corinthian... Let me, let me rephrase that. All of the Mediterranean world knew about the Isthmian Games. These games were incredibly popular. They were held every two years. Uh, they were staged here at Isthmia, which is a suburb of Corinth. And, uh, and so sports motifs are very, very, very common to the Corinthian people. Paul's speaking their language here. And by the way, the people who won the Isthmian Games received huge rewards and lasting fame. Probably the most famous was Clytomachus of Thebes. Uh, Clytomachus, by the way, he won at lots of other games. He won at Olympia uh, wrestling and boxing. He won at Delphi. But get this, one day, in one day, this just astonishes me, 216 B.C. at the Isthmian Games, he won the final of wrestling, the final of boxing, and the final of pankration, which is basically our mixed martial arts. He won all those in one day. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine wrestling in a final against the very best in the world, then going and winning a boxing match against the very best in the world, and then going to Pankratio, to a mixed martial arts cage, and winning against the very best in the world, all on one day. And, and, and what he would have received in, in Paul's time, actually from the third century forward, would have been a fragrant pine bow. Okay, They put pine wreaths around their, their heads. And this replaced something that the Corinthians had done earlier. In the archaic age at the Instrument Games, the, the Corinthians, true story, they used wild celery. Yeah, that was the hey, celery. That was what they put around their head. So Paul's kind of having fun with them here when he's talking about these perishable crowns. Because go back, look, look at verses 25 and 26 again. Everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away. Ha, 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 audience is dying laughing. Celery and pine doesn't last, all right? But we, a crown that will never fade away. Therefore, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. See what God's saying to us? Do, do, you want, do you want lasting rewards at the bima, at the judgment seat of Christ? Then you need to be disciplined in how you prepare your life now. What you're going to receive lasts a whole lot longer than celery or even pine. You're playing for keeps every day. So make each moment count. One of the best books that I have read recently is The Long Walk. Written by Slava Mirovic way back in 1956, tells an incredible tale. It is the story of his unjust imprisonment during World War II and the journey he took to freedom. Let me show you a little bit of his story. He was, after horrible things I won't go into, he was unjustly jailed in Moscow and packed into a, an unheated, completely overpacked cattle car with a whole bunch of other political prisoners and then shipped in the winter thousands of miles, thousands of miles to Irkutsk here on Lake Baikal in Siberia. Hundreds of men died on that journey. But Slav disciplined himself spiritually and body the whole way, determined to stay alive. Then, get this, then they're taken out of the cattle cars with no shoes, 
They are taken in the dead of winter and made to march a thousand miles all the way up to Gulag Camp 303. Hundreds more died. Slav disciplined himself, worked hard to stay alive. Not too long after they got to the camp, Slav and a few other prisoners escaped. I'm not going to ruin the story by telling you anything about it. It is incredible reading. Just understand that it is obvious that God was on their side. And then they walked 4,000 miles. They walked over a year all the way through Siberia, through Mongolia, through the Gobi Desert, all the way across the Himalayan mountains until they got to freedom in uh, India. Slav said it was God's grace and hard self-discipline that allowed them to reach the reward of freedom in India. Here's here's his summary words. This is brilliantly said. Providence and self-discipline were what saw us through. Giving the courage which flourishes in the worst kind of adversity. Isn't that well said? The courage which flourishes in the worst kind of adversity. Now listen to this. He said such courage is quite unspectacular. It is, by the way. It's quite unspectacular, but completely necessary. That's why the day you coast is the day you're toast. Each of us is either facing adversity right now or we very soon will. It's a fact of life. So what disciplines are you implementing to prepare yourself? What, what are you doing to box? By the way, that's an obvious spiritual metaphor, right? What are you doing so you're not just flailing the air in your life? What are you doing to buffet your soul and body daily? Now listen, there are seasonal differences in life. We don't all have to do the same disciplines all the time in the same way. That's why Scripture refuses to give us a checklist. You know that? The Bible refuses to give us a spiritual disciplines checklist so that we won't become legalists about it. But there are some things that are commanded in Scripture and others that are held up as really good ideas. Let me just give you a partial list to get us started. Here are some things the Bible says are wonderful ways to daily discipline yourself. Prayer, which is, which is just directly engaging with God. Bible study, which is taking in God's Word. Worship is appreciating and extolling God's greatness. Giving, do you know what giving is? Giving is just recognizing it's not your money, it's God's, and you're His steward. And you're, you're provisioning His money as how you think He would want you to. Fellowship is, in, is engaging with God's people. Service is, is giving yourself as God's doulos, living as a sacred trust. Now, look at that list. We look at that list, and every one of us looks at that little short list, and we are smitten because every one of us feels that there are things on that list where we're not doing well. We are not as disciplined as we need to be. When we really think about it, we realize there is lack of discipline in our lives that may betray us when we get to our Gobi Desert or when we get to our Himalayan mountains, which are in our present or future. It's a fact. So anybody want to be brave? Let me ask, who will be brave? Somebody raise your hand and, and share, with us, share with us one area where you know you need more discipline on this list. Raise your hand. Yes, sir, what do you need more of? Fellowship. Well said. What do you guys, what do you need more of? Somebody over here. I know some of you very well. I will answer for you if you don't raise your hands. Yes. Service. Very good. Yeah, what do you got? Garen. Prayer. Very good. Uh, how about you guys over here? You're not getting out of this. Come on, what do you got? Worship. 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 Well said. Giving. Nice. All right. Yes. Bible study. Bible study. Okay. Thank you. By the way, thank you. We all relate to all of those. Now, if you know you need to grow in discipline, but you're, you're befuddled regarding how to do so, please do this. Write me. Write me this week. 
I will, I will take your letter and I'm going to pass it on to one of our awesome pastors and they're going to engage with you and, and help you get rolling. And right now, let's do the most important thing of all. Let's, let's, let's pray. Let's engage with God because he is the one who empowers all our discipline. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you will encourage us, that you will deepen us in our discipline because the Himalayas are ahead and the Gobi Desert waits unless you return today, Jesus, which we would adore. I pray that you will discipline us for the good hard work of being your servants, your doulos, and loving all of your other servants. That's beyond our capacity, Lord. But we beg you that you will change us in it. And we pray this for all of our disciplines. I see the ushers coming. Lord, we're about to take an offering. Let us give joyfully, robustly, grateful for how you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.